Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. We all can't help but wonder what adventure lies just over the next ridge. A Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada will take you there. If you're taking on your adventure in a new 2024 Nissan Rogue, class-exclusive Google built-in is your always-updating assistant to call on for almost anything. Google Assistant, Google Maps, and Google Play Store are built right into the 12.3-inch HD touchscreen infotainment system of the 2024 Nissan Rogue. Nissan's SUV has the capabilities to take you where you want to go. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland, senior writer with HowStuffWorks.com. And today, we're going to examine a controversial topic, namely how law enforcement is using facial recognition software and the problems that this raises. Now, before I dive into the topic, I want to make a couple of things very clear at the very beginning. First is I'm biased. Uh, I think the use of facial recognition software is problematic even if you have regulations in place. But I'm mostly talking about unregulated use because really we haven't established the rules and policies to guide the use of facial recognition software in a law enforcement context. So that's problem number one is I, I have a very strong opinion about this and I'm not going to shy away from that. Um, it's really unjustifiable to have unregulated use of facial recognition software in law enforcement contexts. So I want to make that clear out of the gate that I have this bias. And if that's an issue, that's fair. But at least I'm being honest, right? I'm not presenting this as if it's completely objective, unbiased information. Uh, I own this. You don't have to tell me. I know it already. 
Next, this is largely going to be a U.S.-centric discussion so that I can talk about details, but please know that there are a lot of these types of systems all over the world, not just in the United States. And a lot of these places have similar issues to the ones I'm going to be talking about here in the U.S. I'll just be focusing more on U.S. stories to make specific points because this is where I live. And now to explain what I'm actually talking about here. So back in 2010, the FBI undertook a project that cost more than an estimated $1.2 billion, that's billion with a B, to replace what was called the Integrated Automated Fingerprint System, or IAFS. Now, that had been in place since 1999. And I've talked about fingerprints in a previous episode. Um, the IF, IAFS was an attempt to create a, a, uh, a U.S.-wide database of fingerprint records so that if you were investigating a crime and you had lifted some prints from the crime, you could end up uh, uh, consulting this database and see if there are any matches in place to give you any leads on your investigation. The 2010 project the FBI undertook was meant to vastly expand that capability by adding a lot more data to the database, not just fingerprints, but other stuff as well. And the new system is called the Next Generation Identification, or NGI. It includes not just fingerprints, but other biographical data and biometrics information, including face recognition technology. So a lot of images are in included in this particular database. So as part of this project, the FBI incorporated the Interstate Photo System, or IPS. So you have NGI-IPS. That typically is how it's referred to. Now, that system includes images from police cases as well as photos from civil, civic sources that are not necessarily related to crimes. Now, that's not the only way the FBI can scan for a match of a photograph they've taken that relates to a case in some way to this massive database. But more on that in a little bit. Now, the general process of searching for a match follows a pretty simple pattern, although the details can be vastly different depending upon what facial recognition software you are using at the time. So you first start with an image related to a case, and this is called the probe photo. It is the one you are probing, for lack of a better term. You don't know the identity of the person in the photograph, typically. Or at least you might have suspicions, but you don't necessarily know for sure. So you've got a picture of an unknown person in this photograph. You then scan that photo, and you use facial recognition software to analyze the picture and to try and find a match in this larger database. It starts searching all of the images in this database, looking for any that might be a potential match. Depending upon the system and the policies that are in use, you could end up with a single photo returned to you. You could end up with dozens of photos. So these would all be potential matches with different degrees of certainty for a match. You might remember in episodes I've talked about things like IBM's Watson that would come up with answers to a question and assign a value to each potential answer. And the one that had the highest value, assuming it's above a certain threshold, would be submitted as the answer. So it's not so much that the computer, quote-unquote, knows it has a match. It suspects a match based upon 
a certain percentage, as long as it's over a threshold of certainty. Or you might end up with no photos at all if no match was found or nothing ended up being above that threshold. The system might say, I couldn't match this photo with anyone who's in the database. A study performed by researchers at Georgetown University found that one in every two American adults has their face captured in an image database that is accessible by various law enforcement agencies, including but not limited to the IPS. In fact, the IPS has a small number of photos compared to the overall number represented by databases across the U.S. Now, this involves agencies at all different levels, federal, state, even tribal law for uh, for Native American uh, tribes. That ends up being about 117 million people in these databases, uh, many of whom, in fact, a large percentage of whom have no criminal background whatsoever. Their images are also in these databases. And this raises some big concerns about privacy and also accountability. So in today's episode, we're going to explore how facial recognition software works, as well as talk about the impl- uh, implementation for law enforcement and the reaction to this technology. And we'll probably listen to me get upset and a little head up about the whole thing in general. All right. So first, before we leap into the mess of law enforcement, because it is a mess, that's just a fact, uh, let's talk first about the technology itself. When did facial recognition software get started and how does it work? Well, it's related to computer vision, which is a subset of artificial intelligence research. If you look at artificial intelligence, a lot of people simplify that by meaning, oh, this is so that you can teach computers how to think like people. But that's actually a very specific definition of a very specific type of artificial intelligence. When you really look at AI and you break it out, it involves a lot of subsets of abilities. And one of those is the ability for machines to analyze imagery and be able to determine what that imagery represents. In a way, you could argue it's teaching computers how to understand pictures. It's also really challenging. And this is one of the object lessons that I use to teach people how artificial intelligence is really tricky. It requires more than just pure processing power. I mean, processing power is important, but you can't solve all of AI's problems just by throwing more processors at it. You have to figure out from a software level how to leverage that processing power in a way that gives computers this ability to identify stuff based upon imagery. So a computer might be able to perform far more mathematical operations per second than even the cleverest of humans, but without the right software, they can't identify the picture of a seagull compared to, say, a semi-truck. You have to teach the computer how to do this. So let's say you develop a program that can analyze an image and break it down into simple data to describe that image. And then you essentially teach a computer what a coffee mug looks like. You take a picture of a coffee mug, you feed it to a computer, and you essentially say, this data represents a coffee mug. You then would have to try and train the computer on what that actually means. The computer does not now know what a coffee mug is. 
it will recognize that specific mug in that specific orientation under those specific lighting conditions, assuming that you've designed the algorithm properly. But it's way more tricky than that. Uh, what if in the image that you fed the computer, the coffee mug's handle was facing to the left with respect of the viewer? But in a future picture, the handle is off to the right instead of to the left, or it's turned around so you can't see the handle at all. It's behind the coffee mug. What if the mug is bigger or smaller or a different shape? What if it's a different color? Image recognition is tough because computers don't immediately associate different objects within the same category as being the same thing. So if you teach me, Jonathan, what a coffee mug is, and you show me a couple of different examples saying this is a coffee mug, but this is also a coffee mug, even though it's a different size and different shape and a different color, I'll catch on pretty quickly. And it won't take very many coffee mugs for me to figure out, all right, I got the basic idea of what a coffee mug is. I know what the concept of coffee mug is now, but computers aren't like that. You have to feed them thousands of images, both of coffee mugs and of not coffee mugs, so that the computer starts to be able to pick out the various features that are the essence of a coffee mug versus things that are not related to being a coffee mug. It takes hours and hours and hours of work of training these computers to do it. So it's a non-trivial task. And this is true of all types of image recognition including facial recognition. Now, to get around that problem, you end up sending thousands, countless thousands, millions maybe, of images of what you're interested in while you're training the computer. And the nice thing is, computers can process this information very, very quickly. So while it takes a lot, it doesn't take relatively that long. It's not as laborious a process as it could be if computers were slower at analyzing information. So you might remember a story that kind of illustrates this point. Back in 2012, there was a network of 16,000 computers that analyzed 10 million images. And as a result, it could do the most important task any computer connected to the Internet should be expected to do. It could then identify cat videos because it now knew what a cat was, or at least the features that define catness. Catness as in the essence of being a cat, not a character from Hunger Games. Even then, there were times when a computer would get it wrong. Either it would not identify a cat as being a cat, or it would misidentify something else as being a cat, because its features were close enough to cat-like for it to fool the computer algorithm. A major breakthrough in facial recognition algorithms happened way back in 2001. That's when Paul Viola and Michael Jones unveiled an algorithm for face detection. And it worked in real time, which meant that it could recognize a face that it would appear on a webcam. And by recognize, I mean it recognized that it was a face. It didn't assign an identity to the face. It didn't say, oh, that's Bob. It said, oh, that is a face that is in front of the webcam right now. Uh, the algorithm soon found its way into OpenCV, which is an open source computer vision uh, framework. And the open source approach allowed other programmers to dive into that code and to make changes and improvements. And it helped a rapid prototyping of facial recognition software. 
Two other computer scientists who helped advance computer vision further were Bill Triggs and Navneet Dalal, who published a paper in 2005 about the histograms of oriented gradients. Now, that was an approach that looked at gradient orientation in parts of an image, and essentially it describes the process of viewing an image with attention to edge directions and intensity gradients. That's a complicated way of saying the technique looks at the totality of a person, and then a machine learning algorithm determines whether or not that is actually a person or not a person. A bit later, computer scientists began pairing computer vision algorithms with deep learning and convolutional neural networks, or CNNs. To go into this would require an episode all by itself. Neural networks are fascinating, but they're also pretty complicated. And uh, I've got a whole lot of topics to cover today, so I can't really dive into it. Uh, You can think of an artificial neural network as designing a computer system that processes information in a way that's similar to the way our brains do. The computers are not thinking, but they are able to process information in a way that mimics how we process information, or a a semi-close approximation thereof. That's a really kind of weak way of describing it, but again, to really go into detail will require a full episode all by itself. Typically, Facial recognition software uses feature extraction to look for patterns in an image relating to facial features. In other words, it searches for for features that resemble a face, the the elements you would expect to be present in a typical face. So eyes, nose, a mouth, that would be major ones, right? Then the software starts to estimate the relationships between those different elements, like how wide are the eyes. How far apart are they from each other? How wide is the nose? How long is the jawline? What shape are the cheekbones? These sort of elements all play a part as points of data. And different facial recognition software packages weight these features in a different way. So it's it's not like I could say all facial recognition software looks at these four points of data as its primary source. It varies depending upon the algorithm that's been designed by various companies. Uh, and part of the problem that we're going to talk about is that law enforcement across the United States, they are not relying on a single facial recognition software approach. Different agencies have different vendors that they work with. So just because one might work very well doesn't necessarily mean its competitors work just as well. And that's part of the problem. Now, all of these little points of data I'm talking about, these nodal points and how they relate to one another, all of that gets boiled down into a numeric code that you could think of as a face print. This is supposed to be a representation of the unique set of data that is uh, a compilation of all of these different points boiled down into numeric information itself. Then what you would do is you would have a database of faces. So if you wanted to find a match, you would feed the image you have, the probe image, into this database. And the facial recognition software would analyze the probe photo. It would end up assigning this numeric value. And it would start looking through the database for other numeric values that were as similar to that probe one as possible. And start returning those images as potential matches or candidates. They tend to use the word candidate photos. Otherwise, you'll either get no match at all or you get a false positive. 
you will end up getting an image of someone who looks like the person whose image you submitted, but is not the same person. That does happen. And that's the basic way that facial recognition software works. But keep in mind, different vendors use all their own specific approaches, like I said. And some could be less accurate than others. Some might be accurate for specific ethnicities and not as accurate as other ones. That's a huge problem. So it gets complicated. Uh, even when I'm talking in more general terms, you have to remember that there are a lot of spe- specific uh, incidents and specific implementations of facial recognition software that have their own issues. So I'm going to be as general as I can. I'm not going to call out any particular facial recognition software vendors out there. I'm more going to talk about the overall issues that various organizations have had as they've looked into this topic. Now, there are plenty of applications for facial recognition that have nothing to do with identifying a person. I mentioned that earlier, that uh, there was the one for a webcam that could identify when a face was in front of the webcam. This wasn't to identify anybody. It was, again, just to say, yes, there's somebody looking into the webcam at this moment, which by itself can be useful and have nothing to do with identification. Uh, there are plenty of digital cameras out there and, and camera phone apps that can identify when there's a face looking at the camera. And again, it's not necessarily to identify that person, but rather to say, oh, well, this is a face. The camera is most likely trying to focus on this person. So let's make this person the point of focus and not focus on something in the background, like a tree that's 50 yards back. Instead, let's focus on the person who's in the foreground. So that's pretty handy. And again, there's nothing particularly problematic from an identification standpoint, because that's not the purpose of it. But then you also have other implementations, like on social media, which allow you to do things like tag people based upon a an algorithm recognizing a person. So Facebook is a great example of this, right? If you upload a picture of one of your Facebook friends onto Facebook, chances are it's giving you a suggestion to tag that photo with the specific person in mind. That may not be that problematic either, depending upon how your friend feels about pictures being uploaded to Facebook. Some people are very uh, cautious about that. And, of course, you know, I always recommend you talk to anybody before you start tagging folks on Facebook photos just to make sure they're fine with it. Um, I say that as a person who has done it and then noticed that some of my tags got removed by the people I tagged later on, which taught me I should probably ask first rather than give them the feeling that they need to go and remove a tag or two. We've also seen examples of this simple implementation of facial recognition going awry. Google's Street View will blur out faces, for example, in an effort to protect people's identity while Street View cars are out and about taking images. This makes sense. Let's say that you are in a part of town that you normally would not be in for whatever reason, you might not want your picture to be included on Google Street View so that whenever anyone looks at that street for that point forward, they see your face on there. You know, coming out of, uh, I don't know, a Wendy's. Maybe you are a manager for Burger King. That would look bad. Or, you know, lots of other reasons that obviously can spring to mind as well. You don't want to violate someone's privacy. But 
Google Street View would also blur out images that were not real people faces, like images on billboards or murals. Sometimes if it had a person's face on a mural, the face would be blurred out, even though it's not a real person. It's just a painting. Or uh, in September 2016, CNET reported on an incident in which Google Street View blurred out the face of a cow. So Google was being very thoughtful to protect that cow's privacy. But what about matching faces to identities? So in some cases, again, seemingly harmless. You want to tag your friends. But when it comes to law enforcement, things get a bit sticky, particularly as you learn more about the specifics. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. A spirit of adventure lives inside of us. Nissan's SUVs have the capabilities to transform your spirit of adventure into actual rubber meets the road into the wild, true blue real life adventure. You just need a Nissan and a plan. Or better yet, just a Nissan. You can hop into a Nissan Rogue and discover what comes next. Don't worry, the Nissan Rogue has your back. Class-exclusive Google built-in is your always-updating assistant to call on for almost anything. Just climb in and go. No need to connect your phone. Google Assistant, Google Maps, and Google Play Store are built right into the 12.3-inch HD touchscreen infotainment system of the new 2024 Nissan Rogue. No matter where you roam, you'll stay connected to home. Life is one huge adventure, and every day is a little one. No matter if the ride you're on is big or small, a Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada can elevate your adventure and push your limits to something new. Your next adventure is waiting for you. Get in a Nissan SUV and go. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. All right, let's first start with the FBI's Interstate Photo System, or IPS. 
because this one has perhaps the least controversial elements to it when you really look at it. It's still problematic, but not nearly as much as the larger picture. The system contains both images from criminal cases, like mugshots uh, and things of that nature, but it also includes some photos from civil sources, like uh, like ID applications, that kind of thing. When the Government Accountability Office, or GAO, there are going to be a lot of acronyms and initializations, or initialisms, I should say, in this episode, so I apologize for that, but Government Accountability Office, they did a study on this matter uh, just in 2016, so not that long ago. They published its report on facial recognition software use among law enforcement, specifically the FBI, because they're a federal agency, so they were concerned with the federal use of this. The database contained about 30 million photos at the time of the GAO study. So 30 million pictures are in this database. Most of those images came from 18,000 different law enforcement agencies at all levels of government. That includes the tribal law enforcement offices. About 70% of all the photos in the database were mugshots. Uh, more than 80% of the photos in that database are from criminal cases. So that means that less than 20% were from civil sources. Uh, in addition to that, there were some cases, plenty of them, where the database had images of people both from a civil source and from a criminal source. So I'll give you a theoretical example. Let's say that sometime in the past, uh, I got nabbed by the cops for, uh, for Grand Theft Auto, because I play that game. But let's say that I stole a car, which we already know is a complete fabrication because I don't even drive. But let's say I stole a car and that I had moved the car across state lines. It became a federal case. Therefore, my criminal information is included. My mugshot would be included in this particular database. Uh, on a related note, my ID also is in that database as a civil uh, image, not as a criminal image. Well, in my case, they would tie those two images together because they refer to the same person and I had been involved in a criminal act. So while I would have an image in there from a civil source, it would be filed under the criminal side of things. This is important when we get to how the probes work. Now, let's say you have been perfectly law-abiding this whole time, and that your ID is also in this database, but it's just under the civil side of things. Since you don't have any criminal background, it's not connected to anything on the criminal side. So when it comes to probes using the IPS, your information will not be referenced, because the FBI policy is when it's running these these potential matches with a photo that's been gathered as part of the evidence for an ongoing investigation, they can only consult the criminal side, not the civil side, with the exception of any civil photos that are connected to a criminal case, as in my example, those are fair game. So they might run a match and it turns out that my photo for my state given identification card is a better match than the mugshot is, 
that's going to be fine because those two things were both attached to a criminal file in the first place. But let's say that it would have matched up against you since you didn't have a criminal background and since the only record in there was a civil source, the match would completely skip over you. It wouldn't return your picture because your image is off limits in that particular use. Uh, very important because it, it's an effort to try and make sure this facial recognition technology is focusing just on the criminal side, not putting law-abiding citizens in danger of being pulled up in a virtual lineup. At least not using that approach. That's The problem is that that's not the only way the FBI runs searches. In fact, that might not be the primary way the FBI runs searches when they're looking for a match to a photo that was taken as part of uh, evidence gathering in pursuing a case. But let's say that you are an FBI agent and you've got a photo, a probe photo, and you want to run it for a match. What's the procedure? You would send off your request to the NGI-IPS department and you would have to indicate how many potential photographs you want back. How many candidates do you want? You can choose between two candidate photos and 50 candidate photos. These are photos of different individuals, by the way, not just here's here's a picture of Jonathan on the beach. Here's a picture of Jonathan in the woods. No, it's more like here's a picture of Jonathan. Here's a picture of a person who's not Jonathan, but also kind of matches this particular probe photo you adv- you you submitted. And here are 48 others. The default is 20. So if you don't change the default at all, you will get back 20 images uh, that are potential candidates matching your probe photo, assuming that any are found at all. Uh, it is possible that you submit a probe photo and the system doesn't find any matches at all, in which case you'll just get a null. Uh, you might get less than what you asked for if only a few had met the threshold for reliability. Now, we call them candidate photos because you're supposed to acknowledge the fact that these are meant to help you pursue a lead of inquiry in a case. It is not meant to be a source of positive identification of a suspect. So in other words, you shouldn't run a facial recognition software probe, get a result back and say, that's our guy. Let's go pick him up. That's not enough. It's meant to be the start of a line of inquiry. And, uh, whether or not it gets used that way all the time is another matter, but the purpose of calling it candidate photo is to remind everyone this is not meant to be proof of someone's guilt or innocence. The FBI also allows certain state authorities to use this same database, and different agencies have different preferences. So in the GAO report that I talked about earlier, the authors noted that law enforcement officials from Michigan, for example, would always ask for the maximum number of candidate photos, particularly when they'd use probe images that were of low quality. So let's say you've got a picture captured from a security camera and the lighting is pretty bad and perhaps the person wasn't facing dead on into the camera you might ask for the maximum number of candidate photos to be returned to you, knowing that 
the image you submitted was low quality and therefore any match is only potentially going to be the person you're actually looking for. And again, this is all just to help you with the beginning of your investigation. It's not meant to be the that's our guy moment that you would see in, say, a police procedural that would appear on network television in primetime. The FBI also has a policy in that all returned candidate photos must first be analyzed by human specialists before being passed on to other law enforcement agencies. Uh, up to that point, the entire process is automatic. So you don't have people overseeing the process once it's probing all of the database. But once the results come in, human analysts who are supposed to be trained in this sort of thing are supposed to look at each of those returned candidates and determine if whether or not they really do uh, resemble the person in the probe photo that was submitted in the first place. And if they're not, they are not supposed to be passed on any further down the chain. Now, so far, this probably doesn't sound too problematic. The FBI has a database containing both criminal and civil photographs, but when it runs a probe, it can only use the criminal photos or the civil ones that are attached to criminal files. Candidate photos are supposed to only be used to help start a line of inquiry, not to positively identify suspects, and everything has to be reviewed by a human being. That sounds fairly reasonable. But even if you're mostly okay with this approach, which still has some problems we'll talk about in a bit, things get significantly more dicey as you learn more about the FBI's policies. For example, they have a unit called the Facial Analysis Comparison and Evaluation Services, or FACE. FACE. This is a part of the Criminal Justice Information Services Department, CG, CJ, rather, IS. Yeah, I can spell justice with a G. It doesn't make sense. No, the CJIS. This is a department within the FBI. And FACE can carry out a search far more wide-reaching than one that just uses the NGI IPS database. FACE uses not only that database, but also external databases when conducting a search with a probe photo. So let's say, again, you're an FBI agent, and you have an image that you want to match. You want to find out who this person is. Maybe it's just a person of interest. It doesn't even necessarily have to be a suspect. could be that, hey, maybe this person can tell us more about this thing that happened later on. Well, you could follow the NGI IPS procedure, which would focus on those criminal photographs, or you could submit your image to FACE. FACE then would search dozens of databases, holding more than 411 million photographs, many of which are from civil sources. So NGI IPS has 30 million all of them together have 411 million pictures. And again, a lot of those pictures just come from things like passport, ID, uh, driver's licenses, sometimes security clearances, that sort of stuff. That's the, you know, this database has a lot of law abiding citizens who have no criminal record and the images have nothing to do with any sort of criminal act, but they're in these databases. These external databases belong to lots of different agencies, and both at the federal level and state level. So you've got state police agencies, 
Uh, you've got the Department of Defense. You've got the Department of Justice. You have the Department of State. And again, it contains photos from licenses, passports, security ID cards, and more. So your submission would then go to one of 29 different biometric image specialists. They would take that probe photo and run a scan through these various databases, and they would look for matches. Here's another problem. Each of these systems has a different methodology for performing and returning search results, which makes this even more complicated. For example... I talked about how the NGI IPS system gives you a return between 2 and 50 candidate photos, right? Well, the Department of State will return as many as 88 candidate photos if they are all from visa applications from people who are not U.S. citizens. So you could get up to 88 pictures from visa applicants. Or you could just get three images from U.S. citizen passport applicants, because that's a hard limit. They can only return three candidate photos from U.S. citizens who applied for passports, but they can return up to 88 visa application photos. The Department of Defense will whittle down all of their candidates into a single entry. So in other words, Department of Defense, if you, if you query that database with your probe photo, you will only get one image back. So they, they will call all the other ones and give you the most likely match out of all the ones that they find in their search. Some states will do similar things where they will narrow down which images they will return to you. Some of them will just give you everything they've got. Every match that comes up, they'll just return it back to the FBI. So it's very complicated. Uh, you can't really be sure what methods people are using to be certain that the the potential matches they have represent a good match, a good chance that the person that they've returned is actually the same one who was in the probe photo. At any rate, you as an FBI agent wouldn't get all of these at all. All of these photos that would come back, they would come back to that biometric analyst over at FACE. So you're, you send your request to FACE... Face takes care of the rest. They get back all these results. Then they go through the results they get back, and they whittle that down to one or two candidate photos, and they send those on to you, the FBI agent. So by the time you get it, you only see one or two out of the potentially more than 100 images that were returned on this search. But um, you might ask, well, how frequently does this happen? I mean, how how often is the FBI looking at images, including pictures of law-abiding citizens in these virtual lineups? It can't be that frequent, right? Well, again, according to that GAO report, the FBI submitted 215,000 searches between August 2011, which is pretty much when the program went into pilot mode and started to be rolled out more widely, through December 2015, 215,000 from August 2011 to December 2015. 36,000 of those searches were on state driver's license databases. So it happens a lot, 36,000 times. Chances are, if you are an adult in America, you got like a coin flip situation that your image was looked at at some time or another by an algorithm comparing it to a probe photo in the pursuit of information regarding a federal case, or in some cases state cases, because 
The FBI has also allowed certain states, law agencies, access to this approach. Now, according to the rules, the FBI should have submitted some important documents to inform the public of their policies and to lay down the regulations, the rules, the processes that they would have to follow in order for this to be fair, for it to not encroach on your privacy or to violate civil liberties or civil rights. Without those rules, the use of the system is largely unregulated, which can lead to misuse, whether it's intentional or otherwise. The Government Accountability Office specifically pointed out two different types of notifications that the FBI either failed to submit or was just very late in submitting. The first is called a Privacy Impact Assessment, or PIA. Now, as that name suggests, a PIA is meant to inform the public about any potential conflicts with privacy with regards to methods for collecting personal information. The FBI did submit a PIA for its Next Generation system, but they did it back in 2008 when they first launched the NGI IPS. According to the Government Accountability Office, the FBI made enough significant changes to the system to warrant another PIA, that anytime you make a significant revision to your personal information systems, you have to submit a new PIA because things have changed. And according to the GAO, the FBI failed to do that for way too long. Now, ultimately, the FBI would publish a new PIA, but by that point, the Government Accountability Office said they had delayed so long that it made it more problematic in, as a result, because during the whole time that they were supposed to have submitted this, they were actively using the system. It wasn't like this was a system being tested. It was actually being put to use in real cases, and that kind of violates, well, it doesn't kind of, it violates a Privacy Act of 1974, which states that when you make these revisions, you're supposed to file a PIA before you put it into use. According to the GAO, the FBI failed to do so. And also, the longer you wait to file this, the more entrenched those uses come. So if you put a system in place, you build everything out, You've actually taken the time to do it, and then you publish a PIA. Any objections that are raised, you could say, well, we've got a system now, and it costs $1.2 billion to put it in place. It's going to cost more money, taxpayer money, for us to alter it, to remove it, to change it. You could argue against any move to amend the situation. And the GAO says that's not playing cricket or playing fair for my fellow Americans. So that's a problem. But then there's another one. There's a second type of report called a Systems of Records Notice, or SORN, SORN. The Department of Justice was required to submit a SORN upon the launch of NGI IPS, but didn't do so until May 5th, 2016. The GAO criticized both the FBI and the Department of Justice for failing to inform the public of the nature of this technology and how it might impact personal privacy. But wait, there's more. 
The GAO report also accused the FBI of failing to perform any audits to make certain the use of facial recognition software isn't in violation of other policies or even to make sure it doesn't violate the Fourth Amendment rights of U.S. citizens. Now, for those of you who are not U.S. citizens, you might wonder what does this actually mean? Well, the Fourth Amendment is supposed to protect us against unreasonable search and seizure. And part of that means law enforcement can't just demand to search you for no reason. And some have argued that using facial recognition software without a person's consent, using it invisibly and widespread, essentially amounts to crossing that line. Now, in the United States, we've got plenty of examples of troublesome policies that seem to overstep the bounds that are established by the Fourth Amendment. But that's a tirade for an entirely different show. Probably not a tech stuff, maybe a stuff they don't want you to know. There are a couple of laws in the United States that are important to take note of here, uh, besides that Fourth Amendment. One of them I just mentioned, the Privacy Act of 1974, and the other one is the E-Government Act of 2002. The Privacy Act sets limitations on the collection, disclosure, and use of personal information maintained in systems of records, including the ones that law agencies use. The E-Government Act is the one that requires government agencies to conduct PIAs uh, to make certain that personal information is handled properly in federal systems. And the GAO report alleges that the FBI policy wasn't aligned with either of those. Now, part of this accusation depends upon the fact that the FBI was using FACE in investigations for years before they updated their SORN, their SORN. According to the Privacy Act, agencies must publish a new SORN upon the establishment or revision of the system of records. This is what I was talking about earlier, except I think I said PIA earlier when actually I meant SORN. That's entirely my fault because I didn't write it in my notes and I was talking extemporaneously. But SORN is what I should have said. The FBI argued that it was continuously updating the database to refine the system, but the GAO's argument was that you could be continuously updating the system and argue, well, we don't want to publish an SORN after every tiny revision because it's wasteful and time-consuming. The GAO's counter to that is, yeah, but you were using this tool in actual cases. If you were developing this, let's say, in a a department where you're not using real cases, you're just gradually tweaking the system so that it's more and more accurate in a controlled environment, that's one thing. But if you're actively making use of this system in real-world investigations, you absolutely must adhere to these laws because to do otherwise is in violation to laws that are passed in the United States. So you can't have it both ways. You can't continuously tweak a system and put it to official use and not also file these reports. You could argue the FBI was trying to have its cake and eat it too. It's the expression that I think I actually use properly. All right, we've got more to talk about, but it's time for us to take another quick break to thank our sponsor. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. 
Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. A spirit of adventure lives inside of us. Nissan's SUVs have the capabilities to transform your spirit of adventure into actual rubber meets the road into the wild, true blue real life adventure. You just need a Nissan and a plan. Or better yet, just a Nissan. You can hop into a Nissan Rogue and discover what comes next. Don't worry, the Nissan Rogue has your back. Class-exclusive Google built-in is your always updating assistant to call on for almost anything. Just climb in and go. No need to connect your phone. Google Assistant, Google Maps, and Google Play Store are built right into the 12.3-inch HD touchscreen infotainment system of the new 2024 Nissan Rogue. No matter where you roam, you'll stay connected to home. Life is one huge adventure, and every day is a little one. No matter if the ride you're on is big or small, a Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada can elevate your adventure and push your limits to something new. Your next adventure is waiting for you. Get in a Nissan SUV and go. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. Five to six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. All right. So the Government Accountability Office criticizes the FBI and various other agencies for failing to establish the scope and use of its facial recognition technology. But that's just the tip of the iceberg, because the GAO report goes on to make an equally troubling point that the FBI had performed only a few studies on how accurate these facial recognition systems were in the first place. So in other words, not only was this a poorly defined and unregulated tool, but it's a tool of unknown accuracy and precision, which is terrifying when you think about it. Now, according to the report, the FBI did perform some initial tests before they deployed the NGI IPS and then occasionally did a couple of tests when they made some changes. But there were problems with these tests. For one thing, they were limited in scope and they didn't represent how the system might be used out in the real world. When they were actually running these tests, they ran on about 900,000 photographs in the database. So they took a subset of the photos that they had. They took 900,000 of them. And they ran probe tests using photos that they knew either were or were not represented in that group of 900,000. However, you've got to remember the 
the full database is more than 30 million images. So something that works on a smaller scale may not work once you scale it up. For another, the tests did not specify how often incorrect matches would come back. So you didn't know how many false positives were there because the FBI wasn't tracking false positives. They were only concerned with how frequently they were getting a match uh, to you know, an actual image. So the way they test this is you've got 900,000 images. They've got a probe image. They know for a fact that the probe image is inside that database. And then they run the search to see if the system sends that image back. And their threshold was an 85% detection rate for a positive match. So in other words, it went like this. Let's say you need to conduct a test of this system. This is one way you would determine whether or not you had that 85% detection rate. Let's say you have a 100 probe photos that you've taken of one person, and you know this person's face is in that database. You know it's going to be in the, among those 900,000 or so images. So then you submit your query. If you have an 85% detection rate, then 85 of those probe photos should come back with a match, and that match should be the actual person you're looking for. That's what they meant by an 85% detection rate, that 85% of the time, an image that is in their database would be pulled due to a facial recognition software search. Now, during this testing phase, the FBI reported that they met this threshold. Uh, they used a, that subset of, actually it was 926,000 photos as their subset when they were testing it. And they said that they had an 86% detection rate. So they actually were exceeding what they had set as their threshold. But that just meant that 86% of the time, the actual match for a probe photo showed up in a group of 50 candidate images. So you would get 49 other images that were not your match. The match would be there 86% of the time, along with 49 other images. So we know that the system works if you are asking for the maximum number of candidates. Remember, in the FBI system, you can ask for between 2 and 50, but 50 is the max. But what happens if you ask for fewer images? What if you said, no, I want 20 returns? What's the accuracy then? The FBI can't tell you because they do not know. According to the FBI, they did not run tests to see what would happen if you decreased the number of candidate photos you asked for. They only ran tests on the maximum number of candidate photos. And keep in mind, the default for any search is 20 photos. So the default is less than what they tested. And they never tried to see if the 86% detection rate held true at these lower numbers. That's a huge issue. On top of that, the FBI didn't go so far to determine how frequently its system would return false positives to probes. So they never paid attention to how many times they got responses that didn't reflect an, uh, the actual identity. They didn't keep track of it. So according to the FBI, the purpose of the system is to generate leads, not to positively identify persons of interest. So it shouldn't come as a big surprise or you shouldn't even care if it returns a lot of false positives because, hey, this technology isn't meant to be the smoking gun that says, here's the evidence that will put this person away. 
It's meant to just create a lead. So why do you care how many false positives it returns? As if being looped in on a an official inquiry when you had nothing to do with it isn't disruptive or stressful or provoke anxiety. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but if I had a federal agent show up at my door asking me weird questions about a case that I had no connection to because my image had popped up in one of these searches and had I have nothing to do with it, it just ha- so happens that I look enough like a photo that's being used in the case to warrant this, I would probably find that pretty disruptive in my life. So I would care about false positives. FBI, at least according to this GAO report, apparently didn't think it was that big a deal. Now, the GAO points out that it is a big deal and that they're not the only ones to think so. The National Science and Technology Council and the National Institute of Standards and Technology both state that in order to know how accurate a system is, you need to know two pieces of information, not just the detection rate, which the FBI claims is 86%, at least when you're asking for 50 candidates, but also the false positive rate. You have to know both of them in order to understand how accurate a system is. So only knowing one of those pieces of information isn't enough to state this system is accurate or not. You have to know both. So not only does the FBI not have a grasp on how accurate their system is if you're asking for fewer than the maximum number of candidates, they also don't know how often it returns false positives. So the FBI has no way of knowing how accurate this facial recognition software is. Considering that it's being used to actually further investigations for official investigations of the FBI and also other state agencies that have access to the system, that is beyond problematic. If you cannot say that the system, with any degree of certainty, is above a certain threshold of accuracy, why are you using it? Because, I mean, it has the potential to dramatically impact people's lives and potentially lead people down a pathway that could result in in false accusations and imprisonment. Uh, the person who is actually responsible might totally get away with something because of this. This is a real problem. And the the thing is, it might be a perfectly accurate system, but we don't know that because we haven't tested it. So until we test it, we cannot just assume that it's accurate enough. That's not when people's lives are at stake. This is where the, my bias doesn't so much creep in as it kicks open the door and makes itself at home on your couch. But I digress. The GAO report also goes into great detail about how this accuracy really can have a clear impact on people's privacy, their civil liberties, their civil rights. They also cite the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the EFF, which says that if a person is brought up as a defendant in a case and it is revealed that they were matched by a facial recognition system, it puts a burden on the defendant to argue that they are not the same person as was seen in a probe photo, that they are not the same one that the system has identified. And if you cannot reliably state how accurate your system is, because you don't know how frequently it returns false positives, you have unfairly burdened the defendant. 
Like if you were to say, if you're the FBI and you say, we have an 86% detection rate, but you don't admit, oh, by the way, we don't know how many false positives we get on any given search. The implication you have given is that we're pretty sure that this is the right guy. And again, they argue that this is meant to be a point of inquiry, but you could easily see how it could also be used by a lawyer to argue that a defendant is in fact the person responsible for a crime, and they may not be. And because you don't know the accuracy of the system, you can't, using the system to argue for it is irresponsible. There's no accountability there. Now, not only has the FBI failed to establish the accuracy of its own NGI IPS system, it has also not assessed the accuracy of all those external databases that are used whenever they use the FACE approach. There are no accuracy requirements for these agencies. So there's not like a threshold they have to prove that they meet in order to be part of this. That's a huge problem. While each agency might be accurate... With no testing procedure in place, it's impossible to be certain of that. And since these databases include millions of people with no criminal background, and they all use different facial recognition software products, this is a huge issue. You could be put in a virtual lineup simply because you look enough like someone else that a computer thinks you are, in fact, the same person. The GAO report concludes with a host of recommendations for future actions, including addressing the problem of the FBI being so slow to publish those updated PIAs in a timely manner and to create a means to assess each system's accuracy. The Department of Justice read the report and then responded, disagreeing with several points that the GAO report made, uh, including arguing that the FBI and the Department of Justice published information when it made the most sense, when the system had been tweaked and finalized, more or less. However, by that time, again, they had been using that system for real-world cases throughout the entire process. So it seems to me to be kind of a weak argument. You can't really say, like, hey, it wasn't finished until then. That's when we published it. If you also are saying, hey, we use that for realsies to go after actual people, you can't have it both ways. Not, not maintain accountability at any rate. So that kind of gets to the end of the Government Accountability Office report, but that's not the end of the story. In March 2017, Congress held some hearings about this, and boy howdy were some Congress people very upset with the FBI on both sides of the aisle. You had Democrats and Republicans really chastising the FBI for their use of facial recognition software and arguing that it could amount to an enormous invasion of privacy as well as endangering the civil liberties of U.S. citizens. So people who have dramatically different political uh, philosophies were agreeing on this point. So it wasn't really a partisan issue in this case. And it got pretty ugly, but probably not as ugly as the Georgetown University report that was published in late 2016. This is an amazing report. Uh, both the Government Accountability Office report and the Georgetown University report are available for free online. I will warn you, collectively, they're about 200 pages. So if you want some light reading, you can check it out. Uh, they are quite good, both of them, and they're very accessible. Neither of them are written in like crazy legalese, which will make it impossible to understand. They're written in very plain English. 
Now, it was in the Georgetown University report that was revealed that one in every two American adults has their picture contained in a database connected to law enforcement facial recognition systems. And this report goes far beyond just that FBI to state, uh, all the way down to state and local systems that are implementing their own facial recognition databases. And many of them have no understanding of how it might impact the civil liberties or privacy of citizens. The report is the summary of a study that lasted a full year with more than 100 records requests to various police departments. They looked at 52 different law enforcement agencies across the United States. And the report assessed the risks to civil liberties and civil rights because up until this report was was filed, no such study had been made, which is a huge problem. You don't know the impact of the tool that you've created until after it's been put in use for a while. That's an issue. Ideally, you think all this out before you implement the procedure. And their findings were pretty upsetting. For example, the report found that some agencies limit themselves to using facial recognition within the framework of a targeted and public use, such as using it on someone who has been legally arrested or detained for a crime. And in this case, you're talking about totally above-board approach. You're assuming that everyone is is following the law uh, as regards to apprehending and charging a suspect with a crime. And maybe that person is unwilling or unable to uh, to tell you what the, what their identity is. And in that case, you would use this facial recognition software stuff in order to figure out who you are dealing with. That's largely a legitimate case. You know, the the government the Georgetown University study didn't say that's bad. They actually said no, that's that makes sense. It's targeted, it's public. But you could have a more general, invisible approach. For example, using facial recognition software in real time on a closed circuit camera pointed at a city street where you're literally picking up people as they pass by. They're not people of interest. They're just people going about their day. And if you're running facial recognition software on such a feed, you are potentially invading privacy and stepping on civil rights and civil liberties. So even if you were to argue that this real-time use, where you're just looking at people as they pass by and maybe a little name pops up every now and then as it as the system recognizes a person that matches a file in the database, it's easy to imagine a scenario in which such a technology could be abused. Either it picks up somebody mistakenly, it, it thinks it identifies someone, but in fact it's a totally different person, and then you end up establishing a person's location by mistake. Like, it, it's not really where they were, but because the system has identified a person as being at X place at Y time, you then have established, supposedly, that person's location, when in fact that person might be across town or not even in the same state. But it's because of a, a misidentification in the system. That's one problem. But think of this. Think of This is a scary scenario. Imagine a situation in which a group of people are discriminated against by a government agency, let's say. They have a legitimate gripe. It's completely legitimate. They're victims of unfair treatment. So a group of them and some of their allies get together in a public place for a peaceful protest to raise awareness of this issue and to confront uh, the government agencies that have discriminated against them. This is all perfectly legal according to the U.S. Constitution. They're not doing anything legal. They're 
assembling on public grounds in order to practice free speech. But it's not hard to imagine a government agency using a camera with this sort of facial recognition software to identify people who are in the crowd in order to use that as leverage in the future for some purpose or another, even if it's just to say, we know you were there, and to put that kind of pressure on a person in order to essentially squelch people's freedom of speech. So this is a First Amendment issue, not just a Fourth Amendment issue. Now, that might sound like a dramatic scenario, like something like Big Brother-ish, it's Orwellian, but it's also entirely within the realm of possibility from a technological standpoint. There's nothing technologically oriented that would prevent us from doing this or prevent an agency from doing this. And even without the evil empire scenario in place, you still have the problematic issue of treading on civil liberties just by having such technology available and unregulated. You don't have rules to to guide this sort of stuff. The Georgetown report found that only one agency out of the 52 that they looked at have a specific rule against using facial recognition software to identify people participating in public demonstrations or free speech in general. So only one agency actually has rules against that. Now, that doesn't mean the other 51 agencies are regularly using this technology to monitor acts of free speech, but it also doesn't mean that they can't. They don't have rules against it. Only one agency out of the 52 People are being watched and identified without any connection to a crime in these cases. It's pretty terrifying. The Georgetown report also found that no state had yet passed a law to regulate police use of facial recognition software. No no state in the U.S. There are 50 of them, and none of them have passed any regulations, any laws to regulate the use of facial recognition software. So without rules, how do you argue whether someone's misused or abused a system? You have to have rules so that you know what is allowed and what is not allowed. With no rules, the implication is that everything's allowed until it isn't. That's a that's a huge, dangerous problem. The report also pointed out that most of these agencies lacked any sort of methodology to ensure that the accuracy of their respective systems was was decent. The report stated that out of all the agencies they investigated, only two, the San Francisco Police Department and the South Sound 911 from Seattle, had made decisions about what facial recognition software they were going to incorporate in their office based off of accuracy rates. That was not a consideration for all of the other agencies, at least not the ones that they asked. Moreover, they... Report points out that facial recognition companies are also trying to have it both ways. So, for example, they cite a company called Face First. Now, Face First advertises that it has a 95% accuracy rate, but it simultaneously disclaims any liability for failing to meet that 95% accuracy rate. So it's kind of like saying, we, we guarantee these tires. Tires are not guaranteed. Not quite like that, but similar. So, again, this is according to the Georgetown University report. That's a problem for a company to to sell itself on a uh, on a performance threshold, but then 
say, hey, you can't hold us to that performance threshold that we sold you on. That's a little dangerous there, too. Then the report goes on to state that the human analysts, you know, the ones I was talking about earlier, that supposed to be a, a safeguard, human analysts are supposed to take the images that are returned by these automated systems and manually review them to make sure that they do or do not match that probe photo that was the the whole thing to begin with. But it turns out, according to this report, those human analysts are not that accurate. In fact, they're no better than a coin flip, literally. The report cites a study that showed that if analysts did not have highly specialized training, they would make the wrong decision for a potential match 50% of the time. Literally a coin flip. That's ridiculous. Now, the report found only eight agencies out of the 52 used specialized personnel to review images. In other words, people who presumably have actually received that highly specialized training necessary to make more accurate decisions regarding these photos. And the report states that there's no formal training regime in place for examiners, which is a major problem for a system that's already in widespread use. So not only do you need highly specialized training, there's no formalized approach to to give or receive that highly specialized training. So we know you need it, but we haven't developed the best practices to actually deliver upon that. So meanwhile, you've got human analysts who are making mistakes half the time while reviewing these photos. And if you wondered if facial recognition systems would disproportionately affect some ethnicities over others, the answer to that is a resounding and dismaying yes. The report found that African Americans would be affected more than other ethnicities. According to an FBI co-authored study that was cited by this Georgetown University report, several facial recognition algorithms are less accurate for black people than for other ethnicities. And there's no independent testing process to determine if there is a racial bias in any of these facial recognition systems. So no one has developed a test to make certain that it is in fact accurate despite a person's age, gender, or race without being able to verify that it is accurate across all parameters, you have opened up an enormous can of worms and you are disproportionately affecting people just because of their race, because your system does not address that properly. The report also points out that the information about the systems in use had not been generally available to the public. Uh, in fact, out of the 52 agencies that they, they contacted, only four had publicly available use policies. So in other words, only four out of the 52 could tell you what their general policy was as far as facial recognition software goes. That's less than 10% of all of the agencies they looked at. And only one of those agencies, which was San Diego's Association of Governments, had legislative approval for its policy. All the others were just self-appointed policies that had not passed through any kind of official legislative support. Finally, the report asserted that most of these systems did not have an official audit process to determine if or when someone misuses the systems. Uh, Nine agencies reported that they did have a process, but only one 
provided Georgetown with any evidence that they had a working audit system. And that was the Michigan State Police, by the way, who said, we have an audit system and here's proof that it actually works the way we said it did. So good on you, Michigan State, for having that system in place and being able to back it up. Now, the Georgetown University report also urged some major changes in the way law enforcement uses facial recognition, including an appeal to Congress to create clear regulations to define the parameters of when such a system could be used. They also called for companies to publish processes that test their products accuracy, regardless of race, gender and age, to remove that possibility of bias. And if we're being really super kind and generous toward law enforcement, We could say this is just another case where technology has clearly outpaced the law. We see that all the time. Driverless cars, artificial intelligence, lots of different technologies are advancing far faster than legislation can keep up with. All right, that's fair. We see it happen. However, it's particularly troublesome that this is happening within law enforcement that is already employing this technology before we've developed the policies to guide it. It's one thing to say someone's out here working on a driverless car and we need to start thinking about how are we going to regulate that in the future. Maybe right now we say you aren't allowed to operate your driverless car until we figure this out. That's fair. It's another thing to say there's this technology that could potentially impact people's lives and we're allowing law enforcement to use it while we try and figure out the rules. That's at best a problem. And as I said at the top of the show, I'm really just talking about the United States with particulars here, but this is happening all around the world. There are lots of governments around the world that are incorporating facial recognition software along with law enforcement. So while I'm using specific U.S. examples in this podcast, the same is true for lots of other places. Of course, the laws that protect the citizens can be different from country to country, um, and in some cases, there might not be very many outlets for citizens to to voice their concern, or it might even be dangerous to do so. But this is something I think we need to be aware of. I'm not generally the kind of person who tells you that you're being watched or, you know, you should be paranoid. But I'm also not the person to just sit back and let something go on when I feel like it's potentially more of a problem than a solution. All right. That's it. I'm done. It's an important topic, and it's one that's still developing, obviously. Uh, Perhaps once legislation has been passed, once regulations are in place, once we have more definition about what law agencies can and cannot do with this technology, maybe I'll revisit this topic and talk about whether or not it works or whether or not it is a still a good idea or a bad idea or are there any other problems that we did not anticipate when we had this podcast but for now we can conclude this and i hope to do a more zany happy fun tech stuff for our next episode in the meantime if you have any suggestions for future topics for tech stuff email me my email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or you can always drop me a line on Twitter or Facebook. The handle for that the show is techstuffhsw at both Facebook and Twitter. You can also go to twitch.tv slash techstuff to watch me live stream this show. If you want to see me make mistakes live on camera, 
and hear about these podcasts about a month before they actually publish. You can check it out. I record on Wednesdays and Fridays, twitch.tv slash techstuff for more details. And I will talk to you guys again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. Five to six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.